Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe, and at the Seeds Impact Conference, we had a great panel featuring Edmund Hillary Fellows. It was led by the CEO, Rosalie Nelson, and she was joined by Andrew Hewitt, Satya Kumar, Brad Lebov, and Lena Green. And they had a discussion about the idea of regenerative and blended finance. What is it? How is it going to apply in the future? Well, listen to this, and you're going to find out. Tuia kiraro, tuia nga meakato. Rorangatirama, kite mana fenua, tena koto. Kowai o, ko mongatapu, te monga, erune taku nako. Kumatai, te awa, emaheane aku, maharahara, no fakatu aho. Rosalie Nelson Toku Ingua. Uh, look, I just want to say how absolutely delighted I am to be with you all here today for this very important discussion around regenerative uh, and other new financial models that can unlock capital for those that are working at the front line. Um, for those of you that don't know, I, I have the privilege of heading up um, the Hillary Institute of International Leadership. Uh, the Hillary Institute celebrates and recognizes transformative global leaders that are addressing some of the most pressing challenges facing humanity. Um, We have 11 laureates today, and many of them are absolutely foremost leaders in climate change um, and uh, addressing equality. Um, uh, I also have the privilege of heading up the Edmund Hillary Fellowship. Now, the the Edmund Hillary Fellowship is over 500 innovators, entrepreneurs, investors and change makers who have connected to Aotearoa New Zealand as part of a very innovative uh, talent attraction program. Uh, Last year, our fellows connected Kiwi businesses into over 300 million of capital, directly invested 140 million into new innovative ventures, founded over 100 new firms and generated over 40 million in salary. In other words, this is an incredible powerhouse of fellows who are very committed to Aotearoa New Zealand as a base camp for a better world. Uh, So I feel very, very privileged that we uh, have four of our incredible fellows joining us here today. Um, Before I introduce them, I just wanted to give a little bit of context for this particular session. Um, The EHF recently held a weekend hui, which was around the issue of how do we address climate action and particularly nature restoration at the front line. And we had a real mixture of people in the room and there was a lot of discussion and debate, but one of the really key things that emerged through it uh, was that one of the biggest barriers was access to capital and the capacity of frontline initiatives to both be able to identify, but then attract funding and to also demonstrate the measures of value that funders actually required. Now, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, we know that only around 4% of philanthropic funding, for example, is actually going towards climate. And globally, I hear that that kind of ratio is not that unusual. So the question came up, what might be some of the new financial models supported by new or different measures of value that could unlock capital at scale for frontline projects? And and we really thought this worthy of uh, exploration. So um, I'm going to introduce each of our panelists and then just give them a brief period just to offer their opening thoughts on this particular topic. Then we'll kick off into the debate. And look, what I would ask is, um, please, 
do ask questions, provide comments, use the chat really openly because we would love this to be interactive. Um, so our panelists are joining us from all over the world in many, many different time zones. So I'm actually going to start with Satya Kumar. Satya is joining us from India. I think it's about 5.30 in the morning there. And he is an entrepreneur with over 30 years of experience dedicated to energy and renewables. He was actually a real leader in solar energy, receiving incubation support from the World Bank under their photovoltaic market transformation initiative. And that was way back in around, I think, 2000. He's an educator, mentor, and advisor to governments, and is really passionate about the need for different catalytic and regenerative finance models for a sustainable future. So Satya, thank you so much for joining us this early in the morning. Love to just get your opening thoughts. Thank you, Rosalie. Um, yeah, it's uh, my pleasure to be here. And I'll just start by saying that I'm uh, outraged at the slow progress of climate action under the umbrella of uh, uh, you know, Paris Agreement. And the promise of $100 billion a year versus the trickle of funding which has come into the Global Climate Fund, GCF. So, um, I mean, uh, if you see, uh, you know, uh, I mean, also uh, the main uh, reason uh, that, you know, like I have had actually a, my moment of cognitive dissonance with this climate negotiations when I came to know that military emissions are excluded from carbon accounting. I mean, that is something which many people aren't aware of. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is this is like this was made. Uh, this go, goes goes back actually twenty five years to Kyoto Protocol, when the U.S. said, you know, this is a deal breaker for Kyoto Protocols. Military emissions are off the table. And uh, then you have things like. You know, a hundred million dollar ad cam campaign by uh, British Petroleum, uh, where you know the climate problem, fossil fuel problem, has been made our individual problem, where mm -hmm. we should look after our individual carbon footprint, while BP continues to make profit from fossil fuels. But British Petroleum. I mean, I'm taking the example of BP because UK is in the news recently for going back on, you know, uh, fossil fuel extraction and new projects being launched there. Um, so British Petroleum has gone to rebranded as uh, beyond petroleum, but actually they're back to petroleum. So that's mm. where it is. That is a hypocrisy of these uh, climate negotiations, which, uh, you know, is outrageous and... Uh, that's where I think, you know, like having spent this much time as an entrepreneur, I have confirmation bias for renewables. And now uh, I have my entrepreneurial days behind me. And I, uh, I have uh, learned quite a bit in the last, uh, uh, you know, couple of years. And I feel, you know, technology alone cannot fix the problem. If we say tech can fix it, I think those people are wearing a meritocracy hubris. I think technology is important for um, energy transition, uh, decarbonization, but 
it is not enough it cannot fix the problem we have to really think about uh, you know the eons that took for formation of the earth we have to look at biology and geology and find you know nature based uh, solutions i think that's that's where uh, you know like uh, nature based solutions like how uh, uh, you know uh, james lovelock and lynn margulis put it as gaia theory or um, uh, you know how our own uh, laureate from hillary institute uh, johan rockstrom uh, calls it planetary boundaries i think mm-hmm. those are important all the noise is about you know uh, renewables green hydrogen and um, uh, you know um, what do you call it that um, carbon capture now geoengineering and carbon capture this is all the uh, thing about i think what we need are nature based uh, solutions mm-hmm. i think that's where a lot of the ehf fellows are working on it for instance uh, uh, brad mm-hmm. libo uh, sorry uh, brad libo yeah is is a leader in the um you know uh, in this field uh, brian also uh, you know yes. with the seaweed permaculture so i think that's where i would like to see uh, how ehf can come together and uh, we have andrew here uh, yes and look the, the, everyone will have an opportunity to hear from andrew shortly listen thank you yeah. so much satya yeah. Lena, Lena is joining us from Singapore and she runs a multi-country social venture Angels of Impact to fund and support innovations that are tackling poverty, gender equality and sustainability. And she's very much working in this clear space of this clear funding gap for women of color from marginalized communities. And this is her real passion. So Angel of Impact offer community building, capacity building and investment across ASEAN countries. Lena, you are very much in the front line of your space. What is is your thinking about the shifts and changes needed within our finance systems? Thank you so much, Rosalie. Um, I I would like to challenge a little bit in terms of whenever we look at climate issues, we tend to focus only on nature-based solutions or um, the the planet. And I wanted to challenge the concept that the post-colonized and hyper-capitalistic world that we live in actually has been the cause of climate chaos because it fundamentally commoditizes not just the planet, but also people. And that whatever system we come up with has to look at the two hand in hand. The financial system we currently have is actually not broke. It was created to benefit the few at the expense of both people and planet. So clearly we cannot use the same system to solve the problem. We need to move to something that is non-extractive and more well-being focused, not only for the planet, but also for people. Uh, And so the term we tend to use is restorative economics, uh, restorative Mm -hmm. investing, because we take uh, this from Namaka Akbo, who is the CEO of the Katali Foundation, and also known as the mother of restorative economics. And she reminds us that the entomology of the word economy actually dates back to its Greek foundation called the management of home. This is actually the opportunity for us to look as home and as members of one common family, and how are we going to do this together? Now, the problem right now is that while there are a lot of initiatives to try to do good, take impact investing, for example, it's been primarily about do good, do well. 
there is still this idea of even ESG reporting, right? So when you look at the GIN 2020 report, it clearly shows that 22 thirds of people are actually still looking for market returns and maybe impact as a side dish, um, you know, and maybe concessionary rewards. We, what we really need now is people who are brave enough to move forward. And what I find very interesting is besides angels of impact, there are actually a lot of innovative ways of looking at how can we restore and regenerate not just the planet, but also people. And I'd like to highlight Rangi Maria Price, who um, mm. runs Connective in New Zealand. And one of to quote her, she says, from a Tinkanga point of view, Tinkanga is purpose and well-being driven, not profit driven. It focuses on upholding the well-being of people and planet as being the determinants of how you use capital and your best thinking to achieve those ends that imposes on us a sacred obligation, sacred obligation to deeply care for people and a sacred obligation to care for the life supporting capacity of the planet in perpetuity. So there's a lot of interesting innovations. In the US, there's another group called the Candide Group. They invested into a company called the Tankabar. They came up with really innovative models. And the reason why, because Tankabar used indigenous principles of looking at seven generations looking at restoring wealth and community, and you never extract more from planet. You always give back more. Mm -hmm. Angels of Impact, we like to use the term that, um, that people are actually the weavers of a resilient community and a healthy planet. That's why we focus on frontline communities. And really what we feel is we need more of this. You know, there's uh, restorative investing. It's really looking at inclusion governing for the whole regeneration. And Edgar Venueva, who wrote the book, Decolonizing Well, actually calls us to start looking at money as medicine. New Zealand, I feel, is one place that has put well-being economy at the center. It's also a country that has acknowledged indigenous wisdom and culture. And that's why I think New Zealand has a great opportunity to lead the world in looking at alternative ways, not only to solve the climate crisis, but also for the well-being of people and planet. Thank you. It's actually really inspiring um, to hear that. And on that note, I'll pass to um, Brad Lebo. So Brad is joining us from Chicago, and he is a social impact leader, founder, and CEO, and he's been absolutely driven by his passion for building solutions for the benefit of people and planet. So he currently serves as the CEO of Earthshare, where he's on a mission to build a larger, more inclusive community of environmental donors who are committed to sharing resources and passion to saving our planet. So for more than three decades, Earthshare Earthshare has rallied millions of people in support of the planet, resulting in more than 400 million contributed through their giving programs. So, um, Brad, you're very much at the other part of really how do you begin to mobilise financiers towards um, a, a contribution that addresses not just economic well-being. Where are you sitting on this issue? Yeah, thank you, uh, Rosalie, and uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be here uh, with you today. Uh, and I think it's a great foundational question. I really appreciate how uh, Lena uh, brought up the Candide Group, which is really a phenomenal organization based in the U.S., uh, engaged in just the type of regenerative finance uh, in which we're uh, discussing today. And when I look at how the Candide Group raises a portion of their funds, it's often from philanthropic sources of capital. And 
And so, you know, my area of work is on that philanthropic uh, side of the equation. I see philanthropic capital as our best source of risk capital for regenerative finance. Um, and when I look at the size of the sector, the enormity of the sector in the U.S. alone, we have over 1.5 trillion in charitable assets being warehoused in foundation endowments and donor advised funds. Uh, this is uh, an enormous opportunity, but also challenge uh, in the system. Uh, the donor advised funds, which is a, a charitable giving vehicle, uh, similar to uh, private foundations or other charitable entities, but without a requirement to actually release those funds for grant making, uh, those funds that are affiliated with the banking industry in the U.S. dominate the sector, and if they and they've been accumulating assets at an enormous rate. There's now 250 billion dollars alone sitting in donor advised funds, and these are funds that are often sitting on the sidelines potentially being invested in ways that not only com uh, compound the problems we're working to solve, uh, but are actively doing harm. Uh, we have uh, developed one estimate uh, that suggests that uh, funds sitting uh, in uh, these accounts, uh, at least a portion of them are being invested to finance fossil fuel uh, development. And that's the equivalent of over 3 million vehicles uh, on the road annually. And that's just in the U.S. alone. So my you know, work really focuses on the fact that I believe philanthropy has a bigger part uh, to play in the regenerative finance uh, solution. Um, uh, we have the risk capital. Uh, and we in the philanthropic world need to be active, not only in um, uh, spreading uh, the, the wealth, the dollars that we have um, in our bank accounts in grant making, but also in investing uh, and impact investing regenerative finance uh, in particular. So I look forward to the discussion today. Uh, and as I'll share some of the work that we're doing and, and some additional data points uh, as it relates to philanthropy and its role in regenerative finance. Great, Brad, thank you. Um, actually, some fascinating, but also somewhat appalling statistics that are in there. Andrew Hewitt. Um, Andrew, thank you for joining us today. Just checking, I, I believe that you're online. I can't see it on the, in the screen at the moment. Yes, um, Andrew, ah, wonderful, Andrew, lovely to see you. So Andrew has spent the last 15 years, 15, one five, asking the question, how do we change the game of business? Um, it's a recognition that the profit at all cost model is actually putting us out of business as a species. So Andrew has sought to codify a new model, which is both profitable, but also more likely to sustain a commitment to care. So he founded Game Changers 500, and this profiles the world's top purpose-driven organizations, and has also found that the biggest levers to changing the game is how do we address, how, how to address how organizations are funded and structured. So he's recently teamed up with the SDG Impact Fund to leverage the donor advice fund structure to support purpose-driven projects in accessing more experimental capital. So Andrew, I know that you, you've also been very much thinking about what are the new tools that we have, our new financial tools, whether we're talking blockchains or tokens or Web3? Just I'd love to get your thoughts on what's needed in this space. 
Sure thing. Well, first, it's always a pleasure to be here with with other EHF participants and you, Rosalie, and and discussing these matters. And for all of those tuning in, um, what I would love for you to do is share with us a bit of a sense of your background so we can have a better sense of of where you're coming from. So if you were to use a scale of one to 10 and one was you're hearing these terms for the first time and 10 was you're an expert in the field, please put in the chat box just a number of like one to 10 of where would you be on one being very little experience, 10 being a lot of experience with these terms. And uh, that would be super helpful so we can make this as, as relevant as possible and not just speak our own language that might not be understood. Um, so I'm going to use this analogy of a game because I feel like fundamentally uh, what happens is we have an idea. We have an idea to solve a problem in the world, create an innovation. And when we go to initiate that project, we bring in money and we or need bank accounts and we need some sort of structure for it. Right. So what are your choices? Well, you have for profit or a nonprofit. And or maybe a you know some sort of hybrid of that that's starting to exist these days, and but primarily you you're going to be in one of those two structures, and you could call these games right because if you're playing the for profit game, it mm-hmm. has certain rules and certain objectives, maximize profit to shareholders. You can raise investment, create a return on that investment. You're actually legally mandated to do so. So if you wanted to further invest in a, a higher purpose. Uh, you could be under legal pressure from your your investors. So that's a game uh, that you're setting up to play. Now, on the nonprofit side, uh, you can generate a certain amount of, of of revenue from from being a nonprofit as well, but there's also limitations. Um, you can't receive investment and create a return on that investment. You're probably a little bit limited in terms of how you would incentivize talent. So yes, let's say you invent something, it has tremendous traction. Um, how you distribute the rewards of that are very limited compared to what you could do in a for-profit. So we have these two options, these two games. And I feel fundamentally what's happened is that the world's got more complex. We're facing more systematic systemic challenges, challenges that are interconnected. So you can't just solve one you have to actually see that they're all, you have to kind of work systemically to make meaningful progress, which is very complex. And so these two for-profit, non-profit games aren't actually adequate to need to, to coordinate us as human beings and to coordinate our resources effectively to solve the problems that we're really wanting to solve. Um, you know, as was spoken to earlier, like you could, you could, really point your your finger at capitalism and say, well, we, we're not going to solve the problems with this system. It was designed to benefit a few, you know, of course, right? And yet we, we often operate with this assumption that this three-sector model, which is for-profit, non-profit, and government, that is what you could say is our global coordination system. Mm-hmm. And we... I think what we need to do is take a step back and say, is this coordination system of these three sectors um, sufficient to meet the challenges that we're trying to solve? 
And what I've been learning is that um, a lot of noble projects that take the nonprofit route, I mean, you could say they're relying on the profits of the for-profit sector to fund them. So that is an irony in itself often, but um, especially if the for-profits are creating the problems faster than the nonprofits and governments can solve, which the data seems to suggest. And so um, the, the inquiry I've been in is, is how do you, how do you incentivize people, incentivize projects to be more likely to collaborate because collaboration is required to solve these more complex issues? Mm -hmm. um, how do you incentivize capital to go into these more experimental things? But these are things that can generate revenue as well. So it's they're not limited to nonprofit structures too. In fact, one of the best ways to incentivize capital is to create a return on that capital. And actually one of the best ways to ensure the success of this work is to find ways to be regenerative, right? In a way that's aligned with the mission. And so I feel what we've really needed to do is one, own the fact that we're in a three sector system that isn't sufficient and we need to experiment with new game designs. Um, and, and two, we need those pioneers who are willing to experiment with how they're being structured, funded and coordinated. I love the way, Andrew, that you've classified the whole system and then been able to move us forward. You did make a point at the beginning, and I'm just looking through the um, the awareness of everybody on the call. There's a real range of understanding about these issues. So I wondered if I could just put to the panel, is there a simple explanation that we can give when we talk about regenerative finance, blended finance, even impact uh, in investment without going into too, laboring too much is, is someone willing to give a brief definition um maybe i'll take a stab at it the way i look at it it's an attempt to move away from the not the extractive models right so it is there's an element of shifting power and wealth back to where the real innovations or solutions are um, and then there will be all these different forms of you know whether it's blended finance means it's a combination of grants and other uh, and for-profit capital uh you know it'd be different people have different definitions impact investing as i said was supposed to be do good do well but even that is a spectrum from those who want total market returns and impact and those who look at impact first so i think in a nutshell it's like impact is important but it's an element of shifting power and wealth back and and changing the system Oh, I would just add that I think it's often helpful to compare and contrast regenerative finance with conventional finance to really sort of pull out the difference. And I think the difference is that conventional finance is that success is defined by financial return on capital. Positive or social environmental impacts, if they occur at all, are just a byproduct. Whereas regenerative finance, the goal is to make change, uh, positive change possible with the financial return as a by, uh, byproduct. You know, regenerative finance uses money as a tool to solve systemic problems and regenerate communities and natural environments and hopefully heal the planet. Brad, can I just jump in there? Because we've come from a model where there's been quite a clear cut return on investment financial metric. Of success. If we have other measures of value, how do we capture those? Because often if it's social or it's environmental, it's harder to define. 
How do we do that? I think that's the, you know, that's the million dollar question. Uh, I do think uh, the work in New Zealand to really uh, focus on well-being uh, is uh, the right uh, path forward. But I think that is ultimately the struggle that we have seen sort of in our uh, traditional conventional financial uh, system, where we often look for um, uh, you know, blended financial models. So those that are looking for what we would consider a marketplace-based return are sort of at one level of the capital stack. Then we look for some level of concessionary capital at another level of the capital stack. And then sort of that philanthropic capital that may not be returned is a way in which to incentivize sort of the rest of the market to sort of come in into a regenerative financial deal. In terms of measuring the outcome, measuring the impact, uh, I think there are probably a lot of different strategies. Uh, and I sort of welcome uh, hearing our, the other panelists who probably have more expertise in that particular question. Yeah, I I just wanted to add that when we are talking about uh, regenerative finance and new structures and impact uh, measurement, uh, there is a lot of uh, confusion or rather there's a lot of complexity around ESG compliance and triple bottom lines and things like that. So, I mean, within our fellowship, uh, Reggie Luitke has come up with a very simple structure, a new corporate structure which is, I was very impressed with that, giving nature a voice, a seat on the board, and a bank account. And the voice on, of the nature is the voice of the community. So I think that is a simple corporate structure. I mean, uh, compared to the complexities of ESG uh, compliance and whatnot, and uh, I mean, even impact measurement and all that. So I, I I think that's uh, something you can look at, you know, it's within our fellowship. Yeah. Thank you. Lena, because of your work on the front line, where do you see some of the critical barriers to unlocking capital, particularly for women-led or Indigenous-led um, frontline initiatives? Yeah, thank you for that question, because, you know, sadly, uh, bias is really the key thing. You know, um, Lin Hui from the Candide Group, in fact, uh, came up with data that Indigenous-led community development finance institutions like CDFIs run by Indigenous actually in the U.S. have lower default rates, and yet they receive 10 times less funding than white-led. You know, so there's a lot of data there and, and people on the front line are undervalued, under-resourced and often very invisible. So every I've seen so many impact funds, even here in Asia, we've got hundreds and millions of dollars coming into Asia of impact investing, but they all flow to people who look like you and Brad and Andrew, you know, they, so because there's a lot of unconscious biases around it. And I also want to put forward that this is the time to uplift the models and the innovations that's coming on the ground. Uh, you mentioned the different models earlier, but one that wasn't mentioned was relationship-based lending. And this is coming out of Native Women Lead in the US. And they are taking the five C's of finance and flipping it around and calling it the five R's. Um, and the five R's are relation, uh, is reciprocity and relationship on it. Rooted, are they rooted into communal needs and wisdom? Restorative, does it support the employees and the owners to to close the racial wealth gap. Uh, regenerative, is it a seven generation impact? And revolutionary, does it solve a real problem on the ground? So there's 
there are models, but these models are not heard of, you know, where somebody else puts together donut economics or some other thing packed together and everybody jumps on the bandwagon. So I would love to see biases taken off, which is another reason why I keep quoting Namaka Akbo, because she's a black woman, uh, you know, and uplift, you know, all these different indigenous wisdom that has the solution. But bias remains a big problem, even for me who run a fund. You know, that's the fund of funds. And even though I'm Harvard grad and, you know, I've got all this experience behind me, I still face that difficulty. Thank you, Lena. What you're talking about here is a cultural mindset. Is that the critical lever for change, do you think? Absolutely. The way we see each other and with the way we see our planet. Not as something to be exploited and extracted from, but where I win, you win. And not mm -hmm. a win-lose model. Um, if I could just throw to Andrew, Andrew, you've talked about and you've been looking at what some of the new models might look like. What do you see or identify as being the levers for change that would shift us from the three siloed model that you raised before? Sure. Well, piggybacking on the beautiful share from Lena is, you know, I, I approached this from a designs principle, right? So I looked at like, what are the core aspects of the game, right? You've got the objective, you've got um, how you train people, how you make choices, uh, how you incentivize action uh, or motivate. Uh, you've got how you measure performance and then you have how you distribute reward. So you could say across those six areas, uh, we have a paradigm in which we're operating in, um, in terms of what the game looks like. You know, capitalism, the objective is, you know, maximize short-term profit. Uh, you train people for those outcomes, right, for specific mm -hmm. roles and results. Um, what you measure is, a you know, the single bottom line, you know, financial return. Reward is typically concentrated among investors and founders, executives. Um, and so that that's that's a game that's designed for those results. And and some people might want to play that game, um, but there's other games that we need to design and play, right? And so I talked about nonprofit as a as a game, and it has certain incentives that will attract certain people and has certain limitations. I think what Lena just spoke to um and indigenous wisdom points to is a different game design, but it's rooted fundamentally in a different worldview, a different paradigm. And the more you get into this work, as I have, the more you realize that to truly change the game, you need to first change the self, you need to shift the culture. Otherwise, you're probably just in some um, slightly modified version of what currently is. Mm -hmm. And so this is what I saw with my work in doing Game Changers 500 and creating rankings of the world's top purpose-driven companies. And then I worked with the U.S. government and fourth sector so this whole idea is we've got these three sectors let's build a fourth sector of four benefit enterprises that have a certain legal classification and therefore can attract different types of investment and you know you plays into the impact investment community um but then what you see in that space is that it isn't fundamentally a new game because in all six of those categories there isn't change Right. So it's a lot of what we used to call greenwashing or companies that were pretending to be green. Now you could call it even like purpose washing, where they're really putting purpose first and their why and how great we are, or we're a B Corp. But really, when you get into it, 
the mechanics, the things that actually incentivize the human behavior haven't changed. And so what I've been working on is knowing that it's kind of getting creative with how do you fund the cultural shift? So it's a bit of a hack. So basically what I've been working on is how to create one, how do you find the right people to participate? People working on real projects. How do you really fund their ventures collectively so that they're not just individual projects? They're actually more of a, of, of like a hive of projects that are incented to actually collaborate. And then how do you use some of the resource generated to continually fund, you could call the healing or the coherence or, you know, the ongoing process to become more like an ecosystem rather than separate parts or more like, uh, um, more like nature. You know, you look at the school of fish or a flock of birds. It's like, there's a way you can murmur and be more, more interconnected and, and interdependent. And I don't think we're very good at that, but I don't think we're going to get meaningful traction in having that level of cultural change in the world, unless there's the funding for it. So mm -hmm. I believe a hundred percent what Lena's saying, and I just see it happening in little silos with the groups that are already pretty advanced in it. But to get an economic engine behind it, I've been creatively working on on ways to do that. And that's a whole nother conversation. But mm -hmm. um, that's my approach anyway. We get into a really difficult space when we begin to talk about cultural shift because it doesn't happen quickly. <laughs> it's something that takes time. And yet we face our imperatives. We know that we have a globally embedded financial system where value is, is defined and return on investment often a key criteria. Um, what, is, what is it going to take that will drive the cultural shift and move away from acceptance of the current norms to quite different set of um, values around what what we do put value and what what the nature of finance is sorry i may not have it sort of described that terribly well but is the imperative for example of climate and what that means for us as a species is that enough of an imperative for change to shift the financial system or what is it going to take maybe i'll jump in so since everyone has an unmuted but first of all i think we need to demystify <laughs> completely this whole idea that you that you can get significant returns this whole venture capital space uh, which has included into impact investing as well and Morgan Simon has a really good book called Real Impact where she actually calculated that venture funds taken as a whole has actually made losses and that regenerative and restorative investing is actually very you know has better returns <laughs> so I think talking about the good feel well-being how I don't think it's going to shift it, it's data. And the data is out there, but the data is not shared. So we need to mm. share that and demystify it. Love that. Brad, I'd be interested in your perspectives here. Yeah, I think we're we're seeing generational shifts underway. You know, the, the worry is this is not at the speed uh, that the planet needs. Uh, I think we uh, all are probably pretty aware that uh, funding uh, philanthropic support for environmental and climate initiatives is less than 5% of the total. 
uh, funding support. And that's the same in the U.S. as, is it, as it is in New Zealand. Um, uh, but what we're increasingly seeing is younger generation uh, uh, reference climate change and environmental uh, issues as a top one or top two issue. So we're beginning to see a change. I think we're also really beginning as a culture to lean into women leadership. Um, a recent study showed that uh, women, uh, in particular, affluent women um, in particular, make 85% of the charitable giving decisions in their household. Mm -hmm. uh, in addition, 42% of women volunteered, uh, at least with one charity a year. Uh, however, board representation on nonprofits by women uh, is only 16% compared to 30% for men. So one thing that I think we really need to see is more women uh, on boards uh, as well. Uh, and again, younger generations are absolutely leaning in to environmental support. Younger generations are um, actively developing their own philanthropic strategies at higher rates uh, than older uh, generations and elevating climate uh, as a top issue. So we'll see that change long term, but is it at the speed and scale that we need right now? Absolutely not. I'm just going to end because I'm conscious of time. Um, so I can pro I'm going to open it to the panel. I've probably got time for two comments. What's the potential for Aotearoa New Zealand on this? Uh, Rosalie, I think uh, New Zealand has real potential to take leadership in uh, uh, climate action. And it's a new wave of uh, climate action. Uh, uh, I say this because New Zealand has already done that uh, with the, you know, fighting the pandemic. And in the same way, uh, you know, you have the Te Ao Maori and, uh, you know, the concept of uh, Kai Tia Kitanga, you know, mm -hmm. the stewardship of land and oceans and the deep kinship that the Maori have. So using this as, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the Treaty of Waitangi and, you know, what uh, you can do with this, uh, you know, to really uh, launch uh, a new wave of climate action, which is uh, more inclusive and which delivers climate justice. I think that's something New Zealand can do. Thank you. Is there one other final comment from the panelists? Lena, Maybe. I see that you've written something in there. Do you want to jump in? Yeah, I mean, I kind of said that in my opening remarks as well. I think there's an amazing opportunity. I always see New Zealand, even though there's still a long way to go on Indigenous healing, it's also the first country that apologized, that, that did restorative, it is experimenting new models. And if, with that leadership, I think we need to, we, we would have been nice to have an Indigenous person on this panel as well, because I think with that leadership of uplifting women as well as Indigenous, uh, I think New Zealand can play a great role, not necessarily only leading the world, but actually becoming a, a facilitator, a collaborator, bringing these thought leaderships of other well-being economies so that we can create a critical mass to change the way we do things. I'm conscious that we've got, I believe, Avril, just, just one minute. So I just want to close by saying, first of all, a really huge thank you for your thoughts. This is such a big topic. Trying to tackle it in 45 minutes is always going to be a challenge, but there were so many thought-provoking ideas and opportunities. Um, we are really excited. We're, we're holding a discovery session in a couple of weeks to explore this a little further. New measures of value, new finance models. 
So um, if you'd like to learn more, please get in touch. And uh, in the meantime, just a huge thank you to Satya Kumar, to Lena Green, to Brad Lebov, and to Andrew Hewitt. As fellows, Namahi Nui, you are all amazing. Thank you so much. Perfect. And I will also send my thank yous. And um, also just a special one to um, Andrew for creating that space for us to put how, where we're sitting on our knowledge of the um, terminology. I put one, so my mind's been absolutely blown and open. So thank you for creating that space. We hope you enjoyed that conversation about regenerative and blended finance and maybe learned a thing or two. If you did get some value from it, then why not tell another person about this show and this episode? Until next time, kakiteano.